0: It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour.
1: Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long.
0: Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David.
2: Good morning, Steve.
0: And David, we're both looking forward to this coming Sunday, October 17th, at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific. We're going to have a virtual Congress Club meeting and we want to hear your stories and share strategies to keep holding Congress accountable. That's what Ralph always says. It's the Congress. It's the Congress. So if you're a Congress Club member, look out for an invitation from us. And if you're not a member, become a member. We've got a lot of RSVPs so far. Keep those RSVPs coming. Go to the Ralph Nader Radio Our website. And in the top right margin, click on the button labeled Congress Club to get more information. And guess what? We also have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph.
3: Hello, everybody. You know, I often say this is going to be an interesting show. Well, listeners, you're never going to hear a show like this in a long time about the issue of imperial war and what soldiers go through.
0: I completely agree, Ralph. And Last week on the program, we explored the oxymoron of humane war and concluded that trying to convince ourselves that war can be humane only makes for more war. So today we're going to continue on this war path, as it were, by looking at the issue from a different angle, not an academic one, but from the point of view of a soldier fighting in our wars. In his new book, Un-American, A Soldier's Reckoning of Our Longest War, West Point graduate Army Ranger Eric Edstrom examines his experience serving in the U.S. Army during our war in Afghanistan. What motivated him to join the military? Did the dream of serving a noble cause ever bump up against the reality on the ground? What was the reality on the ground? Most often, when those of us here stateside discuss or debate war, it's all so abstract. What is war really like, not only for the Americans serving overseas, but also for the people who live in the countries we invade? We'll be discussing that and much more with Mr. Edstrom. Our second guest will be Garrett Repenhagen from Veterans for Peace an organization that's been working tirelessly for decades to expose the full costs of war, build a culture of peace and heal the wounds of war. Some of their recent initiatives include the Climate Crisis and Militarism Project, Truth and Recruiting and Gamers for Peace. Looking forward to hearing about that. Earlier this month, Mr. Rippenhagen and other activists from Veterans for Peace and Code Pink led demonstrations outside Creech Air Force Base near Las Vegas to protest the US military's use of drones for surveillance and airstrikes. We'll ask him about those drone protests and the organization's efforts to educate, advocate, provide veteran services, and work to end all wars. As always, we'll check in with our indefatigable corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's take a look at war from the
2: ground up. David? eric edstrom is a graduate of west point and u.s army ranger school and he is a veteran of the war in afghanistan he's the author of un-american a soldier's reckoning of our longest war welcome to the ralph nader radio hour eric edstrom thank you david
3: welcome indeed eric i mean you ought to be commended for writing a book like this i've often been very upset that soldiers are not given voice. They're flattered by the politicians that get them in these criminal wars of aggression. And I guess the expectation is that soldiers will respond with public silence about what they saw and experienced. I remember there was a professional poll of soldiers in Iraq in the field. It came out, I think, January 2005. It was approved by the Pentagon to conduct this poll, and slightly over 71% of the soldiers said that the U.S. should get out of Iraq in six months or so, including a slim majority of Marines. And then over 10 years ago, there was a large gathering, winter soldier gathering outside Washington on a weekend where the soldiers spoke from the heart and from their minds. It was almost totally ignored by the media, including much of the independent media. And then there was this ban on the press not taking photographs of soldiers mortally injured on the ground or otherwise affected by shrapnel. You weren't supposed to allow the American people to see that because when they saw it coming out of Vietnam, they tended to be more worried about getting out of Vietnam. And to top it off, Eric, you and I and several thousand other veterans are members of the Veterans for Peace out of St. Louis. And uh, I just looked at their budget and their budget, their whole annual budget is equivalent to one week's pay by the CEO of Lockheed Martin, one week's pay without benefits, I might add. Mm -hmm. So this is where we're at and we're very pleased that you're with us. So just give our listeners a summary of your book, especially the three visions.
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, first of all, Ralph, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. And thank you for giving voice to, as you mentioned, a uh, group of people which is conspicuously absent oftentimes from mass media in terms of getting the message out there in terms of what was the war worth and how can you talk about this in a way that's acceptable for mass consumption and not coming off as an angry screed or a wail of some variety in written form. And the... Sort of genesis of the book was actually my journals from Afghanistan. So I deployed with a light infantry unit out of Fort Carson, Colorado, 4th ID, and went to Kandahar, Afghanistan in 2009, and was there for a year, right there through sort of the Obama surge, right around the time General McChrystal was getting sacked from his job for the Rolling Stone article. At that point in time, it was month on month the bloodiest month in the Afghan war. And we kept setting records for violence and not just violence in terms of US soldiers being injured or killed, but also civilian injuries and casualties and deaths and displacement. And I witnessed this firsthand as being a sort of young platoon leader in charge of about 30 soldiers on the ground. And I kept a journal. I would be in my truck or At the end of a day, patrolling, I found it very cathartic. And writing gave me not only sort of an emotional outlet, which was lacking when you're living in a mud shack in rural Kandahar and Zari and Argandab and Panjway districts, but it also gave me a mode of communication with my family and loved ones. So, I was not often able to use a phone. Satellite phones are hard to come by. So what I did was I would write and then maybe once a week, compile these thoughts into a lightly edited journal and send it out to these people. And you realize writing 10 pages a week that by the end you have quite a lot of content, you know, about 500 pages. And I never really knew what to do with it, but I went about my life and continued. I did my final stint in the military with the Honor Garden, Washington, D.C., which has the inauspicious honor of burying soldiers killed. And I, you know, very personally handed the folded American flag to my dead friend's crying mother, one of my West Point classmates who was killed on tour with me in Afghanistan. And their family came to the conclusion that they were going to bring the ashes to rest in Arlington Cemetery. So my final two years, although not in a war zone, we were not fully devoid of war's harms and, and witnessing that, although in a different context. And as I proceeded through life, I just sort of sat on these journals and thought that it bothered me enough year after year and hearing more civilians being injured, watching my very own Afghan interpreter, who has been in the special immigrant visa process with the State Department for now a grand total of seven years and has still not been issued a visa, that it was under my skin, and I needed to say something. And so I tried to think about this and how to structure the book. And as you mentioned, Ralph, you talked about the three visions, and I can go into that briefly now, which in the very first chapter, I encourage America, the mass America, the the readership, to just ask some simple questions of themselves, and then draw their own conclusion about whether or not they should be supporting a war. Because one of the sort of hardest but most important things to realize is that military service in and of itself is very different from other forms of public service. If you become a teacher and you are better at teaching STEM to children, you could argue presumably the community is better off. If you are a firefighter and you are better at putting out fires, again, you can probably sleep soundly knowing that the community is better off. But if you are better at invading and shooting other people, the world and those people and yourselves as soldiers are not necessarily better off. And in that sense, it is very different than other forms of public service, and it is not an absolute good to serve in the military. It's a relative good, which is to say that it is only as good as the purpose for which it is being used. And I wanted to draw that distinction, and I put it together in three visions, basically asking you to imagine your own death in war. And the question I ask is if you as an individual American citizen are not personally, personally willing to die for this conflict, don't support it because someone will. Someone out there in America is going to put on a uniform, whether it's because they're just undeniably patriotic, or whether they're coerced from their socioeconomic conditions and they have no other way to pay for college and they see this as a route, or for any number of other reasons but somebody is going to be killed. And if you're not willing to do it, don't send anyone else to do it either. So that's that's the first part. The second part is to imagine the other side. And basically I asked the audience to imagine a birth lottery where we are very fortunate to be born in America. And if that birth lottery allocated you to grow up Ralph in Iraq or Afghanistan yourself, how would you view this 20 year long war in your country. What would you think about these occupiers, these people that you know, talk about good intentions, but keep killing you by drone strike? You've had weapons aimed at you for decades and every single year they're replaced with the next unit to do the exact same thing, drive up and down the roads, accidentally shoot people and install a government that's well known to be corrupt. You know, How would you deal with that? Or to put the shoe on the other foot, Imagine America being occupied by another foreign power. How would we as Americans deal with that? You know, we certainly don't tolerate a lot of oppression from the police, and there's riots in the streets and things like that. So I imagine we wouldn't tolerate it very well. The third question- It's quite is,
3: remarkable. Isn't, it, Eric, the lack of empathy on that point you just made? It's hmm. like the vast majority of Americans have other things that are preoccupying them, as their country and military go into these wars all over the world. And they think that if they meet a soldier in a supermarket, they can basically say thank you for your service and they feel good about themselves. What do you think when someone says to you in a shopping mall or wherever, thank you for your service? How do you reply? I
1: I mean, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I often want to acknowledge that this is some sort of nice intent, but it's very cheap. And I refer to this sort of notion and the people that who are often most willing to wave the flag and yell USA, USA, that they usually have the least amount of knowledge about what the soldiers are actually off doing. And I refer to this as lobotomized patriotism. And it is basically a group of people that rather than protesting or asking hard questions, take the easy way out. A couple crinkled bills in a coffee can outside of a grocery store for the USO or a handshake. That's not doing the job. Soldiers who have been going year on year to deployments where they could have both their legs blown off and have some of the worst experiences of their entire life and occasionally some good ones too. But overall, it is very negative that these people are patting a soldier on the back in the airport as they are going off to their fourth year of deployment in a war zone and have the gall to call that patriotism when what it should be called is betrayal. The American people have betrayed the American soldiers by basically treating the war like elevator music for the last 20 years. It's disgusting.
3: And I might add, treating the flag as a gag in the mouth or as a fig leaf. The flag Hmm. is supposed to, in the Pledge of Allegiance, represent with liberty and justice for all. So they think if they can wave the flag, that that's a relief from their responsibility. Of course, there are a lot of Americans who are for peace and for the rule of international law. But you're pointing out this particular segment of the population that thinks that anything that involves soldiers overseas is patriotic. Continue.
1: That's right. It's also sort of patriotic correctness or a bit of sort of greenwashing for businesses where, you know, bottomless nachos or Memorial Day mattress sales isn't actually patriotism. It's far from it. And if you actually want to respect soldiers, you need to ask how their service is being used and object loudly whenever you believe that that service is being misused. Because the most intimate betrayal is to be sent to kill or die for nothing by your own countrymen. And that's exactly what has been happening for 20 years. The third vision, which I talk about, which should also be on people's minds, I hope, is to imagine the opportunity costs associated with the war. None of this happens in a vacuum. By doing one thing, you are not doing another, and we only have limited capacity and resources as a country. We could be allocating those resources in many different manners. For instance, Why is it that we're sort of spending $800 billion or thereabouts on a defense budget per year? Why is it that we're spending $7 trillion or thereabouts, according to Brown University, for the amortized costs and servicing debt obligations? Because of course, it was all paid for in debt. When there are far larger issues, i.e. climate change, for instance, i.e. wealth inequality, i.e. infrastructure, education, or healthcare, there's lots of other issues which should be in any objective sense, if you asked what is the actual risk and what is the payoff and the return on investment, those are all issues that have a much higher ROI in a business speak than trying to play Taliban whack-a-mole to the tune of trillions of dollars. And our country doesn't get it. So in the last section, I want to draw a very clear line of what are the things we're not doing because these have become our national priorities. And what might we have if we were to change our priorities, which should be, I hope, inspiring enough for people to vote their elected officials and politicians out of office or even potentially run for office themselves because right now the status quo is unacceptable.
3: So well said. We're talking with Eric Edstrom, the author of Un-American, A Soldier's Reckoning of Our Longest War. It should be a bestseller. It's a perpetual book. It doesn't go out of date. And you should send it to your library listeners. Have discussions in your living rooms about it, because we're still in these endless wars. And what Eric has narrated continues to be replicated. I wanted to ask you, Eric, how did you deal over there with the pleas of the natives, the agony, the screaming, the shouts, of whole families being blown up? How did you relate to all that? Did that get into your diary in any specific way? And what about your fellow soldiers? Did they develop a kind of steely response to it in order to protect themselves from a moral injury?
1: It's a great question. I describe in the book, I try to draw an image of when you're there and the show must go on, that you're effectively taking these sort of dark emotions and complex confusing feelings that are very intense and you effectively have to pour them into sort of nuclear waste containers and cast them down into some sort of emotional pit inside of you, hoping that the sort of rickety barrels are strong enough and will last until you can return back home to the United States to deal with it, that you can't afford a lot of emotional spillover because there just isn't really a lot of time to process it because every day you're out on patrol every you know, moment. In many cases, you have that lingering feeling that you need to look over your shoulder and and keep looking for suspicious activity. So there's that gnawing fear that is always there, which never really allows you to fully investigate your emotions in the moment. But, you know, in terms of sort of the plight of ordinary Afghan people, it's, it's very palpable. I mean, it's one of the poorest countries on earth. They've had an extremely rough many decades from... The time when the Russians are there to the Taliban and Mujahideen warlords, you know, basically having factions fighting one another like gang warfare, and then an American occupation for the last 20 years. They haven't had an easy time. And if you look at any sort of academic figures about PTSD, don't worry about American soldiers, worry about the Afghan people because it's, we're war tourists. We go over there for a year, two years, three years, one at a time. At the end of our time, we know that we can escape. We can go back to the United States. You could, you know, if you don't like it, you can eventually leave the army after your contract is over. There is no leaving Afghanistan for impoverished people who are subjected to live in a war-torn country. There is not much that they can do. And even for those that have the means, today, the State Department is making it very difficult for our very own Afghan allies to leave the country. And they're not willing to grant the requisite number of visas to match the demand of eligible evacuees. So it's, it's deeply problematic.
3: The Pentagon has been contracting out in the theater of war a lot of services that used to be performed by the military there's a political purpose that the Pentagon has because the more companies they can involve in these activities that are situated all over the United States, they let their support for continued warfare be heard in the halls of Congress. So it's it's part of the military-industrial complex. It, it also helps
1: very much, Ralph, with the brass parachutes as well for senior generals and admirals when they're considering an exit from the military at the end of 20 or 30 years of service that so, now is the time to cash in you know the belief that you've been underpaid for too long as a 06, 07 in the army or you know marines and now it's your time to go to the private sector and have a cushier job that pays 8x the salary of what you were earning in the military so you know if you're doing some business say as the G8 of the army where you're in charge of the annual budget it's unsurprising then that Those people then go on to work at those very same contractors who won the largest contracts. And then you're on the other side, pitching work and pitching projects to your former subordinates, the people that you'd been mentoring for the last five, 10 years.
3: And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that the Department of Defense has been in violation of federal law since 1992, refusing or declining to submit to Congress like all other departments and agencies have done, auditable data so that the Government Accountability Office of Congress can review and analyze the Pentagon budget. And year after year, the Pentagon promises it's coming, it's coming, but it never comes because all the corporations and their lobbyists swarming over Capitol Hill don't want an audited Pentagon budget. Imagine the largest single discretionary budget in the federal government.
1: Not only just the willingness, it's their capability to do so. There are some good segments, actually, Rolling Stone did a good article about the audit, and they just can't even keep track of their own equipment and expenses and receipts. So there's huge billion-dollar holes all over the place where they just can't account for what happened to things. So that is the other problem making the audit particularly tricky, is that it's to give money to the military is to throw it into a black hole that has never been, in any fiduciary way, responsible about it.
3: Precisely. And listeners should know that some of these exposés come from military audits inside the Pentagon itself. They weren't about spare parts. You're spending huge amounts of money for spare parts because you can't locate where they are in factories in the U.S. and around the world. The inventory system has broken down. A personal question, Eric, you graduated from West Point, and I've spoken to all the military academies, the West Point, the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy. It's quite an experience because the participation in the Great Halls is a command performance. So you you speak to just about every student at these military academies. And I always ask the superintendent or whoever introduces me a question. I say, does West Point have a student newspaper? And they say, no, we don't. I said, well, you know, this is where they can talk about and discuss the big questions of foreign and military policy. It's a good experience. And the reply is, we really don't have time. We keep the cadets so busy. They don't have time. I said, well, they have time for football. They have time for-
1: Yeah, for model UN uh, and any number of other activities right, so, as well.
3: So how, how did you turn out this way? Was it your upbringing <laughs> or your experience or what?
1: When you say turn out this way, you mean poorly, Ralph? <laughs>
3: no, no, to turn out this way in terms of a demonstration of professional courage. well, interestingly,
1: like I think one of the things I think about with military values, and this is a point of tension and friction, which is that on the one hand, one of the army values is is loyalty. And on the other is personal courage, specifically moral courage, which is one of the Sort of subcomponents of it, which is to stand up and do the right thing, whether it's tough to do so or not. And so these two values are in tension and conflict with one another. My personal belief is that you can't have a just world if loyalty is superior to moral courage. Moral courage and a willingness to critique or be a whistleblower so to speak which is bandied about as a term but if you're unable to do that you will not have a just world you will have sycophants and and bad things happen when people follow orders and direction blindly without questioning it the best teams i've ever been a part of are very transparent about what is going well and what isn't and those are teams that win and It is concerning to me from a performance standpoint that in some cases, the military seems unwilling to learn or discuss plainly the issues of its failures, not only in selection of war, prosecution of war, retreating from the war and leaving behind hundreds of thousands of Afghan allies, for instance, or the costs associated with it. Um, So there needs to be a reckoning around creating a mirror in these institutions where you can look yourself in the face and your actions and take a different path.
3: Well, you've really thought this through when the book came out, a soldier's reckoning of our longest war. Did you get any response from Congress, which collectively is a check writing ink blot when it comes to the military budget, did any senators or representatives reach out? Was there any possibility of you testifying
1: no, I, there, I was never invited to testify before Congress. I haven't had any individual congressmen or senators reach out regarding the book specifically. I mean, I have gone to my congressman office, who's Congressman Stephen Lynch of the 8th District of Massachusetts, and personally went into his office in 2017 talking about the war, talking about the broken SIV process where we're abandoning all of our Afghan allies, including one of my own. And he did absolutely nothing about it for four years since that date in 2017. And even now, when I called actually their office again a couple of weeks ago and spoke to one of the staffers, when I asked about what could be done to fix some of these issues, the response was, quote, there's nothing we can do.
3: And he's one of the more progressive no, I mean he's for from the...
1: Massachusetts, but he is he is yeah. hawkish in terms of the spectrum. I mean, like, yes, there are no Republican congressmen in Massachusetts, but he is the more conservative of all of them. He's certainly no Ayanna Presley, that's for sure. He's far more right and more hawkish on some issues than Seth Moulton, who's actually a war veteran.
3: That's interesting. On some domestic policies, he's pretty good, but you're probably right on the military. Even Elizabeth Warren supports the military budget and doesn't want to challenge Raytheon. Let me ask you this question, it's really intrigued me. What has been the response of the major veterans organizations to this book, American Legion, Veterans of Foreign Wars? I mean, recently you spoke to the National Convention of the Veterans for Peace, but these other organizations are vastly bigger in number and more influential in Washington. Did they give you the cold shoulder or did they invite you to speak or did any of their officials make a comment about your book?
1: No, I mean, the VFW certainly hasn't. It's usually the smaller, sort of more lefty or progressive groups that are willing to talk about this message. There are some, you know, more libertarian and sort of fiscal responsible Republicans that also want to talk about, you know, military spending, for instance. Most folks aren't really that interested to talk about the morality and sort of asymmetric injustice of the conflicts themselves and how America would never tolerate the things that we do to other countries. And if you look at the definition of what terrorism is, you know, it's very interesting that, you know, if a drone strike were to happen in America or if an American were dragged off to a black site to be tortured, these would uncontroversially be called terrorism. But when we do it to other countries, it's very conveniently called counterterrorism. So having those discussions with various political groups, unless they're radically open minded, are usually not too keen to hear that message. The veterans themselves, though, you know, I'm I'm getting some very warm receptions from.
3: At this point, we're going to have Steve read a part of a remarkable article by a friend of yours who was a former Marine infantry officer. And he wrote this astonishing personal account in the Washington Post, August 20, 2021. And it's the eyewitness account of remote warfare. Can you read some of the excerpts, Steve? We'll get a reaction from Eric.
0: Yes, this is from Ian Cameron in the Washington Post. He wrote it in August, on August 20th of this year. And Ian writes, for nine months in 2018 and 2019 roughly the 18th year of America's war in Afghanistan, I directed airstrikes against the Taliban. From an operations center made mostly of plywood in the middle of the Helaman Desert in southern Afghanistan, our team of intelligence, artillery, and aviation specialists deployed some of the world's most sophisticated technology against Taliban fighters who were primarily armed with rifles designed during World War II. We tracked and hunted these militants for hours every day with multi-million dollar indefatigable Reaper and Predator drones. We guided A-10 warthogs, F-18 fighter jets, or Apache helicopters to these targets, and the drones' high-powered cameras provided intimate portraits of the effect of well-aimed steel and explosives on human flesh. I oversaw these airstrikes every day in a neat eight-hour shift. Pretty much the only regular schedule I ever had in the Marines. I'd wake up in my quote unquote can, a small but comfortable air conditioned metal container outfitted with a bed, desk, and a dresser. I would take a hot shower and shave and then walk 100 feet over to the cafeteria for a breakfast of eggs, bacon, and Cheerios. Afterward, I crossed a small, dusty road lined with portijons to arrive at the operations center. I brewed a pot of coffee. And took over my shift at 8 a.m. I killed men for the next eight hours, unquote. That's from Ian Cameron in the Washington Post.
3: And he continues in a lengthy article of what he did, how they avoid killing civilians, including children. Give us your reaction to this, Eric.
1: Well, I personally know Ian actually as an acquaintance. He's a few years younger than me. He went to the Naval Academy, but I had the chance to meet him when both of us were studying at Oxford in the UK. And, you know, we're pleasant with one another and hung out at a couple veterans and other sort of events and stuff like that and stayed in contact. And we were writing to one another via email after his tour. And he said, look, you know, I'm open-minded. I'll, I'll pick up your book. And then he went on to say that he found parts of it very confronting And forced him to think about, you know, what he was doing. And it made me feel like I was able to reach someone when on the day that that news article by the Washington Post was published by Ian, that he reached out to me again and thanked me saying that the book was sort of a instigator for writing this. And it made him sort of think more deeply about his work and He wrote an incredibly impressive piece and hopefully his piece resonates with other people and they go on and do the same thing. And in a matter of time, I hope that the narrative around not only these wars, but American sort of military interventions changes. And I think that the writing is on the wall that it will. I think that in this year, in 2021, it's unlikely that we're going to make another American sniper or lone survivor, this sort of war porn film that we would do in the mid 2000s or early 2010s. I think that America's, I hope, very fed up with these wars and have seen that they haven't yielded any benefits in any objective category. So I think that the sort of narrative is changing. And this is the way that it has been in past wars too. Vietnam had you know, films like the Green Berets and John Wayne and everything else. And it's only after a war is over when a country can take a decent look at itself and ask, what did we do? And that's when you sort of see other films and art you know, around Platoon or Full Metal Jacket that came out much later. And I'm hoping, unlike the Vietnam War, that we actually properly learn the lessons so we don't condemn future generations to stupid warfare instead of focusing on issues that actually matter, that actually impact a far larger number of people like the climate crisis.
3: What do you say to those who say, well, all well and said, Eric, but as warfare is conducted in an increasingly autonomous and remote manner, and there are minimal casualties on the U.S. side, and as long as the Congress doesn't make the country pay for the war year by year, as we used to in the past, but simply increases the debt on our children and grandchildren, that there's really no compelling force that's going to get the U.S. population to say to Washington in elections and between elections, no more. We want you to wage peace.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you're an advocate for drone warfare as a method of foreign policy, you need to have your head examined. It's not going to achieve your objectives. You're actively committing terrorism. And we certainly as a country would not accept drone strikes on our land. So why is it acceptable for us to do it elsewhere? And if there ever was a point where let's just say China becomes far more wealthy than the United States, and we continue to fetter away our advantages as a country, that we have set a horrendous legal, moral, and ethical precedent by doing these things in other countries, because then other countries could just as easily do it to us with whatever future technology exists. So, we have run from the moral high ground and any sort of principles that our country might have you know, hoped to strive for through this form of combat. And I hope that it is relegated to the historical dustbin.
3: The problem is that it's hard to prevent retaliation someday. For example, Trump ordered the execution of General Soleimani, the top general in Iran, when he was visiting Iraq at the Iraq airport, and suppose they retaliated even the score with a top US general, then you'd have like 90% of the American people wanting to blow Iran apart. So what is the defense against that kind of provocatory retaliation that we caused in the first place?
1: I mean, I hope it's an honest reflection of what that yields you, that you're not going to achieve your objectives through those means, that if you, for instance, or an American citizen, the likelihood that you are going to be killed by a foreign-born terrorist, according to The Atlantic, is lower than your own furniture falling on top of you and killing you. You're more likely to die of bees or dog bites than terrorists. It just isn't a factor in the grand scheme of things of what is a threat and what is not. So we should not divert our assets and basically steal from future generations to invest in terrible wars when there are far larger risks. So you know, if we are a country that is trying to keep the world safe for democracy, and that's a lofty ambition, but let's just say it's true. If we're trying to keep the world safe for democracy, the first thing that you need to do is make sure that we're able to have life on it and that it is preserved and that the planet is able to exist and function without cultural and social collapse. So, I mean, that should frame the priorities of what we should be focusing on, which is far more in the category of, of the climate crisis, which is going to affect far more people than small random acts of terrorism, which, to your point, Ralph, can't be fully prevented. You can't fight a war based on terrain denial, which is to say that wherever you are, there is always somewhere else where a capable insurgent or enemy or terrorist would be able to go. It's not possible for America to be looking at every single apartment in England or Somalia or a storage facility in Arizona. There are a million places people could potentially operate and we just can't be everywhere. So what is a better idea is to not instigate the anger and the hatred that would produce terrorists by doing some of the tactics that we do on a regular basis Systemically, as a military against these people,
3: it would be a good idea if we want to promote democracy abroad to be a democracy ourselves and let Congress decide, not the presidency under both parties, when we go to war. And 100% agreement. Unleash drone warfare. Absolutely. Cetera. I think it would be good if the Veterans for Peace had you and Ian Cameron and many others who've been on the ground protesting have sort of a national tour where you have town meetings with people all over the country in order to wake up the citizenry to their own strength on 535 members of Congress who can turn this situation around. Mm. So I hope you think about that. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Our next guest is the Executive Director of Veterans for Peace. So thank you very much. We've been talking with Eric Edstrom, The author of the book, Un-American, A Soldier's Reckoning of Our Longest War. And if you are part of a peace group, this is essential reading. If you're part of a citizen group, you better read it if you want to rebuild this country and not spend trillions of dollars blowing up other parts of the world and creating even more enemies against our national security. Thank you very much, Eric.
1: Thank you, Ralph. We've been speaking
0: with Eric Edstrom. We will link to his book, Un-American, at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to welcome Garrett Reppenhagen, the Executive Director of Veterans for Peace. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokyber.
4: From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, October 15, 2021. I'm Russell mokyber Corporate criminal law doesn't exist, and it never has. That's the conclusion of two rising young stars in the corporate crime academic world, Iowa law professor Mihalis Diamantis and Michigan Ross School of Business professor Will Thomas in a new article titled, But We Haven't Got Corporate Criminal Law. Criminal justice has four distinctive features, they argue. It utilizes uniquely demanding procedures to target the worst offenders with the harshest penalties and society's deepest moral condemnation. The United States' purported system of corporate criminal justice lacks all four features, they argue. The biggest corporate criminals routinely sidestep all criminal procedure and any possibility of conviction by cutting deals with prosecutors, trading paltry fines, and empty promises of reform for government press releases praising their cooperation. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber.
0: Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. With our next guest, we're going to continue our anti-war
2: theme. David? Garrett Reppenhagen is Executive Director of Veterans for Peace and a U.S. Army veteran. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Garrett Reppenhagen. It's an honor. Thanks.
3: Yeah, welcome, Garrett. And I just want to note that just a few days ago, you joined Veterans for Peace members and Code Pink, in protesting outside Creech Air Force Base in Indian Springs, Nevada, to urge the United States to stop using drones for surveillance or airstrikes. And you were there right up front as one of the protesters. What do you think you achieved by that? Did you get any press?
5: We did get some press. Yeah, thank you. It was over 7 days of actions and protests mostly at dusk and dawn when they have the major shift changes at Creech Air Force Base it's about 40 miles outside of Las Vegas in the desert there near the Nevada test range where the nuclear weapon testing occurred and it's you know it's a heavy run base they they run thousands of missions out of that base all over the world you know and drone controllers and operators are firing munitions at people all around the world that are piling the drones right there in air-conditioned boxes at Creech Air Force Base. So we shut down the base gates a handful of times. We did a lot of great direct reach-out to drone operators and base personnel with our younger veterans, asking them, you know, to resist following the footsteps of folks like Daniel Hale, blow the whistle, or even attempt to get conscientious objector status and, and stop doing what they're doing. So, you know, I think we made an impact, we got some press, and most of all, we connected with a lot of base personnel, which is is really critical in our mission.
3: Tell us about Mr. Hale.
5: Well, Daniel Hale was a drone operator and took a very bold step and and released information that eventually uh, helped create a documentary, The National Bird. And it's, you know, a lot of the stuff that Daniel Hale revealed, I think was eye opening for the public that really showed the truth about collateral damage, very poor target identification that leads to incredible amounts of innocent civilian casualties and deaths. And as we saw in the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where I believe it was seven children were killed in a drone strike of false identification in an urban area in Kabul during the withdrawal. So that, that's very common. And in the rural areas in Afghanistan, people live in terror, absolute terror of the oppression of, of possible drone strikes, indiscriminately killing them, whether they're picking pine nuts or going to a wedding or just going across town. So, you know, it's. These types of weapons only create enemies of the United States and just really legitimizes you know, extremism and radicalism against the Western world because we use such weapons of oppression and it's not helping our national security any.
3: Why don't you describe in some detail what's going on at Creech Air Force Base? They, they sit in front of councils. How many of them? How many do they launch over a period of time? Give us a flavor of all this. And how many countries do they Unleash these drones in?
5: Well, the drone strikes are all over the world. You know, areas in the Middle East like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, you know, all over Asia, South Pacific. They're used in Africa. And all the drones are operated in bases like Creech. There's a handful of others like Beale, uh, Hancock. There's one in New Mexico. And, you know, these bases, yeah, these teams of operators, it takes more than one person to operate and fire a drone. So it's an entire team. That's managing, piloting, target identification, firing systems, and it really takes a group effort. And yeah, it's it's not all Air Force personnel. There's civilian contractors employed as well that are are taking roles in this. Bases like Creech Air Force Base, there's thousands of missions every week that drone operators are using. They call that base the tag name, even under the plate when you drive into the base where it says Creech Air Force Base, they call it the home of the hunters and if that gives you kind of any perspective they're hunting human beings from that base and you know folks go and operate drones all day with their starbucks coffee and you know they get done at the end of the day they go back into las vegas spend time with friends and family and get up the next day pick up their starbucks on the way to work and kill people again the next day so it's a very strange way of operating warfare but it it is the way of the future this is modern warfare and
3: Did any of them ever come out and talk with you? You were there for about a week protesting at the base.
5: Yeah, they're ordered not to, but we still had some conversations with a handful of folks. We have napkins with QR codes that lead them to a website called askvets.org, where we have some resources and a letter directly to the drone operators, trying to build camaraderie and, and see if they need any support or help. And- On the napkins, there's a QR code that leads them to the website and we hand out donuts, free donuts to base personnel with the QR code on it. And uh, that encourages some conversations as uh, as folks come and get donuts. So, you know, there are people that are unhappy about the situation, unhappy about the missions. Many folks, just like me, because I served as a sniper in Iraq and I was wrestling with these same moral issues and trying to balance the oath and commitment I made with the ethics of the actual mission. And there are a lot of folks that seem to be wrestling with that and, and are talking openly about ways to get around it. Many of them feel stuck. You know, there's an economic draft is the reason why a lot of people are joining the military. So they feel stuck and committed to being part of the military service and, and wear the uniform, but don't want to do that job anymore. So most of the folks that we talk to are looking for ways to change their MOS their military occupational specialty, get out of the drone warfare, leave Creech Air Force Base. And, you know, if if they don't want to quit the military, that's fine. We'll still offer camaraderie and and community support for anybody who needs that in this this time of their struggle.
3: Give our listeners the website where they can get up to date on all this and get more information about Veterans for Peace.
5: Yeah, our website is veteransforpeace.org. And if you want to check out the letter that we have to base personnel, it's askvets.org. And Killer Drones has an incredible website too, so you could look for Band Killer Drones. And there's a handful of other good resources out there that a lot of of groups are mustering together. And obviously Code Pink, which is one of our allies out there at Creech Air Force Base and are pretty much the lead organizers of that effort. They have a a great website too.
3: And you have chapters of Veterans of Peace all over the country. Do you have a map of them on your website? So people in California or Connecticut or Michigan who have been in the armed services, can join, and can non-veterans also join Veterans for Peace? Start with the website.
5: Yeah, we don't, we don't have a map yet. We're actually working on it, and we're going to put a map up there soon so folks can find chapters. We have chapters all over the world, actually. We have international chapters, ally chapters all over the world in Vietnam and Spain and in the UK and Okinawa. So we have chapters all over the world, you know, you can join if you're if you're not a military veteran and you want to support us and, and organize with us. If you see the power of military veterans speaking truth to power and using their voice of veteran privilege to, to help push back against nationalism and against militarism, you're welcome to join as an associate member. We have a certain level of percentage of non-veteran members that are allowed in the organization. But yeah, in my opinion, if anybody who's definitely, if you've, you've served in any sort of military or carried a weapon in a uniformed or non-uniformed army, and you want to put that weapon down and work for peace, please join Veterans for Peace.
3: Yeah, Veterans for Peace is the real thing, listeners. I mean, they demonstrate, they picket, they lobby, they testify. And I might add also, Garrett, that you go way beyond anti-war. You you have pro-peace policies in the Middle East. You have opposition to the devouring military budget. You have an annual convention where you develop strategy. Where's your next annual convention?
5: Well, we've done our last two conventions online because of COVID, and we're going to do the next one online. So anybody is welcome to join. We usually have an incredible list of speakers and events on our national convention online, and it's open to non-members as well. You know, we're trying to build more online. Military recruiters are going online, so we have an initiative called Gamers for Peace that we're trying to push back on predatorial online recruitment of young adults in the military. So we're trying to get creative ways on how to use this online tool as much as possible. So we're doing our conventions online for now, and we're doing a lot of other things that are in an online format to keep us powerful, keep our community together, and do some real solid action, even if we can't mobilize in person sometimes.
3: Yes, well, I spoke to one of your conventions a number of years ago, so I know fully the enthusiasm, and it it involves the remaining veterans from World War II, and then the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, and all the rest of the wars. It's not just Iraq and Afghanistan. We're about to run out of time. And before we close, I do want to get Steve and David to pitch in here. And then we'll give you a last word and the website again, so our listeners can support this wonderful group.
0: Thanks, Ralph. Garrett, I want you to elaborate
5: more on Gamers for Peace. That sounds very intriguing. What is that program? Gamers for Peace is an initiative that we launched. You know, we kind of recognized that military recruiters were moving to online. You know, obviously in COVID, they can't do need to need conversations with our kids in their high schools and in shopping malls. So they've, they've moved heavily to an online format. And You know, they're able to have conversations with your children while they're playing video games in their bedroom or in their living room and convince them to join the military. And they don't have to wear a uniform, obviously. You know, they don't have to identify themselves as a military recruiter until they've really cornered your kid into a discussion and are are talking about the possibilities of if you like video games and shooting them up, if you want to do it for real, they have a way for you to do it. And obviously it connects to drone operations and the future technical side of, of warfare, cyber warfare and other things are great to recruit kids directly from from these online multiplayer video games. So we have a community called Gamers for Peace that's an, a VFP initiative and we're starting to push back on recruiters. We're trying to change laws in places like Twitch and on these platforms like Steam and you know these other online gaming platforms to try to make rules to curb the ability for recruiters to really do this predatorial recruitment of our children. Because I figure if we're going to end war, we need to deplete the military of resources, either monetarily by cutting the budget with great programs like people over Pentagon, or deplete their manpower, their person power by preventing kids from joining the military and trying to convince folks who are in to put down their weapons and, and to walk away from war. So Gamers for Peace is a great way to do our Truth in Recruitment program online and connect with kids and speak about our experiences and what these tactics are of, of these military recruiters online.
3: And the website again for that?
5: You could find it on our veteransforpeace.org website, but we do have a Discord channel and we have a Twitch channel that you can find if you want to check out some of our online content that we stream every day.
3: This is very important because everybody has a high school or secondary school in their community. And this is very important information, David.
2: Yeah, thank you. My kids went to an inner city school and they had army recruiters. Nobody was registering anybody to vote at their high school, but they had army recruiters. Do you catalog the lies that are told to these kids? (laughs) <laughs> you know we don't have any sort of like anything written
5: anywhere as 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 far as that goes we have mostly just anecdotal stories but that would be a good project to try to accumulate American Friends Service Committee does have some good information out there, but I think some of that information needs to be updated because there's really modernized techniques. You know, the U.S. military, each military branch has a military occupational specialty and MOS for digital game playing. They even have esports teams, electronic sports teams that are out there that are competing in tournaments, you know, which basically is an advertisement campaign for the Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marines. So uh, it's pretty crazy, uh, some of the stories that we hear from kids that are are being approached by recruiters online and how they get them to get into one-on-one conversations or group chat rooms or other things to have these conversations with them and, and really try to, and sometimes bully or, or trick them into joining the military.
3: Well, we're out of time, unfortunately. We've been talking with Garrett Rappenhagen, who is executive director of Veterans for Peace, which I understand has a 501c3, so any contributions are deductible. Is that correct, Garrett? Absolutely,
5: 501c3. We're we're an activist, nonpartisan, nonpolitical organization, and we're just a very large group of veterans out there speaking truth to power and try to put some good back into the world after being perpetrators of violence overseas.
3: Indeed, I hope the American Legion of Veterans for Foreign Wars are starting to listen to you, especially after the debacles in the Middle East and the horrible infliction of devastation on the peoples there, in addition to our own soldiers and the economic drain. Empires always devour themselves, and our empire is no exception. Thank you very much, Garrett. To be continued.
5: Thanks, Mr. Nader. We have been
0: speaking with Garrett Reppenhagen. We will link to Veterans for Peace at ralphnaderradiohour.com. That's our show. Well, I want to thank our guests again, Eric Edstrom and Garrett Ruppenhagen. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call a wrap-up. A transcript of the show will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website
2: soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Kyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. For a
0: copy of the day, the Rats Vetoed Congress, go to RatsReformCongress.org. And also check out the Ralph Nader and Family Cookbook, Classic Recipes from Lebanon and Beyond. We will link to both of those
2: on RalphNaderRadioHour.com. This is really important. Remember to join us on Sunday, October 17th at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific for our virtual Congress Club meeting on Zoom. We want to hear your stories and share strategies to keep holding Congress accountable.
0: You are so right, David. So if you're a Congress Club member, look out for an invitation from us. And if you're not a member, become a member. Go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website and in the top right margin, click on the button labeled Congress Club to get
2: more information. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music Stand Up Rise
0: Up was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon, our associate producer is Hannah Feldman, our social media manager is Steven Went.
2: Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we'll welcome Miranda Massey, who talks about her work founding and running the Climate Museum, and Randall Kennedy to discuss Say It Loud, his new collection of essays on race in America. Thank you, Ralph.
3: Thank you, everybody.